Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In the midst of culture wars, it is important to look at how the two sides operate. In our scripture, Ahab bolsters his power, while God whittles his down to three people. You're listening to The Church of Zarephath by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our scripture reading tonight is from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. These are some stories from the life of Elijah the prophet. Let's listen to them together. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. That's foreign territory. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? That's an enormous ask in the middle of a famine, right? In the middle of a drought. That's an enormous ask. As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. So I studied this text this week and thought about it. I thought, you know what? This is a good text for a church living through a culture war. This is a good text for any church, for any church community living in a time where there's enormous pressure, enormous conflict in the culture, and that, culture, that, that conflict is not just cultural, but it takes on a, a religious uh, tone. It's expressed in religious terms. And I think 
that's what we are going through now. I don't want to make a case for that. I think that's pretty obvious. We are in the middle of a culture war. Enormous divides in our society. Those divides are often expressed in religious terms. And during the reign of King Ahab in the land of Israel, uh, Israel was going through almost exactly the same thing. And I want to look at this passage tonight because I think it's really interesting to see what God does with his church, with his people, when they are in the middle of this kind of conflict. Now, let me be clear. If my sermon doesn't make it clear, and I think it will, let me be clear up front. As I talk about this today, as I talk about, say, King Ahab, who's clearly the bad guy in this story, I am not trying to make some sort of allegory or some sort of equivocation between King Ahab and some modern religious uh, political figure. Ahab is not Biden. Ahab is not Trump. Ahab is Ahab. Okay? What I'm interested in tonight, because I think it is interesting, is what does God do with his people? How does God live and work through his people in a conflicted time? The roots of Israel's cultural trouble went back many, many, many years. We're in the time of the split kingdom, right? So there's a northern and a southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin are in the south. The other ten tribes are in the north. And in Israel, things are chaos. They've undergone already a couple of dynastic changes. Different families have come to power. And when these families come to power, and you can read about this leading up to our story, they completely wipe out the other dynasty, right? They kill everyone associated with the previous dynasty. Men, women, children. The streets of Samaria are full of blood. And then Ahab comes along and he makes things, if possible, even worse. Because he's just as violent as all those other kings. And on top of that, he's a fanatical Baal worshiper. And he marries a fanatical Baal worshiper, Jezebel. And together, they try to make Baal worship the chief religion of the land of Israel. They push Baal in every place and they push against the Lord. They even go so far as to put an altar to Baal in Solomon's temple, right beside the altar of the Lord, the ultimate desecration. So Ahab starts this cultural conflict with those things that he does, and the Lord, who is a righteous God and does not like it when his name is blasphemed, pushes back against this blasphemy, against this desecration. And he does it in a way which really pokes Baal right in the eye. And to understand how that's so, you've got to know what kind of God Baal is. Do you know, you know he's an, uh, an idol, you know he's not a real God, but as he was worshipped, do you know what Baal was the God of? He was the God of storms and rain and thunder. So Baal was precisely the God you would pray to if you wanted the rains to come and water your your crops, so you could have abundance. So when the Lord chooses the punishment that would fall on Israel and says, it will not rain until my word, he's deliberately saying, Baal has no power. It's a kind of object lesson for all those Baal worshipers that Baal is absolutely nothing. So Elijah comes and announces this drought to Ahab and Jezebel. And as you can imagine, Ahab and Jezebel are furious with the Lord because of this drought, 
And they're even more furious with Elijah, the messenger, for being the one who announces it. So they sort of declare war on the people of the Lord. And you can read this if you go into to 1 Kings 18 and, and following. They declare war on the people of God. They start persecuting the prophets. The prophets have to hide in caves. And they come especially hard after Elijah. They put up posters with Elijah's face on it all over the kingdom saying, Elijah wanted dead or alive. And it's not enough for them to post those all over Israel. They go into neighboring kingdoms and say, have you seen this man? We will pay a handsome sum if you bring us his head. They go after Elijah hard. So there's this life and death struggle in Israel between Elijah and the people of the Lord on one hand, people of Yahweh, and between Baal and Ahab and those people on the other. Here's what I'm interested in tonight. How do those two sides fight the culture war? How do they work out their disagreements? What do they do in this conflict? Because the way the two sides fight is very different. Ahab engages this culture war by going big. He musters all his power. He collects all his influence. He uses all the power of state to find Elijah wherever he is. He musters his troops. He uses his money and his power however he can. And he also musters the power of religion. He tries to gather to himself all religious power. He surrounds himself with court prophets. Now, what are court prophets? Those are religious leaders who are on the payroll of the king and whose job it is uh, to sort of baptize all the decisions and policies of the king. They're on the payroll of the king and they're prophets who are meant to say that whatever the king does is a-okay with the divine. Throughout history, political leaders have understood, and that was true in those days, it's still true today. Throughout history, political leaders have understood that when you are announcing some big policy initiative, when you're talking about a war or some new plan, it always helps to have a priest or some religious leader in nice clothes standing behind you and nodding his head. Because it makes it seem like you're on the side of the angels. It makes it seem that God is on your side. Ahab is a savvy politician and he understands that. And so he has a whole stable of court prophets to muster religious power against Elijah. 450 prophets of Baal on his payroll. And we see that later in the chapter on Mount Carmel. Those are the ones that Elijah goes to battle with. But here's something less known. You all know about the prophets of Baal. Ahab also had on his payroll prophets of the Lord. Prophets of the Lord. If you read further in 1 Kings 22, there's a story where Jehoshaphat comes to town to visit and Ahab is thinking of going to war against Aram. And he wants to talk with Jehoshaphat and decide, trying to get his permission to go into war, wants Jehoshaphat to go into war with him against Aram. So he calls in these prophets of the Lord to tell what God thinks of this. And all the prophets say, yes, go into Aram, we will give it into your hands. These are the yes men, 400 of them hired by Ahab. Jehoshaphat is not impressed and says, don't you have any other prophets we can talk to? 
So Ahab goes big. He musters military power, he musters his cultural power, he musters religious power in this culture war. How does the Lord fight? How does the Lord push against all that power? Does the Lord go big? Does the Lord summon an army of chariots? Does he create a giant movement among the people to overthrow Ahab? Does he muster all the cultural power of Israel against Baal? No. The Lord does exactly the opposite. The Lord goes small. Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner we have Ahab with all his soldiers and all his money and all his court prophets. And in this corner we have the army of the Lord. A refugee prophet, a poor widow, and her sickly son. The weaponry of Ahab, chariots and horses and spears and glittering armor. The weaponry of the army of the Lord, a jar of oil with about that much oil in it, a jar of flour with about that much flour in it, and a few sticks collected for the fire. The conflict starts and Ahab goes big. The conflict starts and the Lord goes small. He pushes his prophet into a place of cultural and political irrelevance. Can we reflect that this must have been hard for Elijah? Because Elijah was a man of influence. Elijah was like the leading prophet of his day. He was like the leading dissident of his time. When Elijah spoke, people listened. Everybody knew his name. Again, read 1 Kings 18. Elijah shows up again. Everybody's like, oh, Elijah's back. They all know Elijah. If Elijah lived today, he would be the person who would be like the leader of the opposition. If the media wanted an alternative quote after the king made a speech or a policy, they'd go to Elijah to hear something contrary. He'd have hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. He'd be a thought leader. But when the time comes for the fight to really begin, God strips him of all that cultural power and all that influence and puts him in a place where he has no cultural power at all. Why does God do that? Why would God declare war on Baal and then push his people to this place of irrelevance? I want to suggest tonight two reasons why he might do such a thing. First, God is spiritually preparing Elijah for his future. When you are a strong, intelligent, influential person, as Elijah obviously was, you tend to learn to lean on your strength and your influence. Elijah was extremely smart. He was used to using that power to outsmart his opponents. He had a great tongue. He was a good speaker. He was using that to muster people. He had influence and connections. He was used to using those connections to assemble the prophets together. He has grown like any gifted person extremely attached to those gifts. And I'm sure, like all of us, he starts to learn to depend on those gifts. So to prepare him for the struggle ahead, God strips him of all those things so that he may know where his help comes from. In the widow's house, Elijah has no collection, connections, no influence, 
no power, no food, no water. He has nothing. He literally has to get up every single morning with nothing in his hands and an empty jar of flour and an empty jar of oil and say, please, Lord, please, Lord, please, please, please. Give me today my daily bread. And at the end of every day, the bread is there, the water is there for another day for him and for his household. How long did Elijah live in this state of utter dependence? Weeks, months, years, we don't know. But it was enough to teach him what he needed to learn. Because Elijah would need that knowledge because when he would stand on Mount Carmel in front of those 450 prophets of Baal, he would know no matter how talented he was, there was not enough talent in him to defeat that army. The power had to come from somewhere else. What is this like, learning this dependence? It's like learning to swim. If you don't know how to swim, and you're watching people who do know how to swim, whether they're good swimmers in a local pool, or especially if you're watching swimmers on the Olympics, the impression you get from watching people swim is that this is something that happens because these people are you know, really strong, and they've worked on their craft and perfected it so that the stroke is just amazing. You think it's a function of strength and craft. And of course, for Olympic swimmers, there is a lot of strength and craft. Their strength and craft is what makes them go fast through the water, but it's not what makes them able to swim. They can swim only because they float. It's only because the human body is born up in water that anyone is able to swim. No matter how strong someone is, if, if the human body wasn't somewhat buoyant, you could swim with all your might and you'd just be swimming down to the bottom faster. That's why when you teach children to swim, one of the very first things you teach them is to float, to not do anything, to be still and know that the water will hold them up. In Zarephath, God is teaching Elijah to float. God is teaching Elijah to be still and know that he is God. God is teaching Elijah that no matter what is happening in the world, he is floating on a sea of God's promises and on a sea of God's grace. Because in the face of Ahab, Elijah is going to need that knowledge. We all need that. I got a communication from a member of this congregation uh, this weekend, uh, this week, and I won't tell you who that person is, but I will say that this is a person who's just been battered by this year. Had a terrible year, death, sickness, family, conflict, all of these things. His life has been a real struggle. And this person told me that through all these things, one of the things he's realized when all his cords have been cut, is that he's stuck with Jesus. I don't know if you can understand that. But when everything hits you, the kinds of things that you imagine might drive you away from faith, when all those breakers wash over you, and at the end of it, you still find yourself turned, with your face turned towards Jesus, you realize, my anchor holds within the veil. I am stuck with Jesus in the best possible sense. If I still love Jesus at the end of this, I will love Jesus through anything. 
or maybe better, if I can get through this, I know Jesus will hold me through anything. Another way of saying what happened to this man this year is that he realized that he floats. I don't wish his trouble on any of you, but I do want you all to know that you float. If all your powers were stripped away from you, and someday they will be, you will find yourself floating on the sea of God's grace and on his promises. So next time you're in a pool, I have a spiritual exercise for you. Next time you're in a pool, don't swim, just float. And for a moment, remember that that same power of God is bearing you through your entire life. That's the first reason why I think the Lord does this to Elijah. The second reason why the Lord shrinks the church and puts it in this place of weakness is parallel to the first reason, is to teach the church what's most essential to its being. We as a church are called to engage the world kind of like Elijah was called to engage the world, we are called to engage the world on all sorts of fronts, to confront immorality, to confront evil when we see it, to work for justice, to spread the word, to do all kinds of acts out there. But the power for all those things that we do out there does not come from our cultural position or from our economic might or from our connections or from our political power or from the number of people who show up in the pews on Sunday in American churches. Not that cultural power is a bad thing. Cultural power is great. It's better than not having cultural power. And if we have any of that, we ought to use it for the kingdom. But this story shows us that that all-surpassing power that changes the world does not come from that cultural power. It comes from our Lord. Verse 1 in our passage has a really interesting phrase. Elijah comes to Ahab and announces what the Lord is going to do. And he says that he's there in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, whom I serve. In the original Hebrew, the translation is just a little different. And it's, you can read this in some other translations. It says, the Lord of, I'm here in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand before whom I stand. That's the source of the church's power and authority as we do our work in the world. We're not strong because we're vested with cultural influence. We're strong because we stand before his face. In that way, that little, those three people at Zarephath, that's a picture of the church. That's a little church stripped down to its bare essentials. Three people caring for each other, looking out for each other, lifting each other up, sharing miraculous bread together, and living before the face of the Lord. Later, Elijah will move out from that place of irrelevance and he will do amazing things. He will confront the prophets on Mount Carmel. He'll confront Ahab face to face about the injustice he commits against Naboth later, from that little church, a movement will start that will bring Ahab down. But the power for that comes 
from those three little people and the grace that lives in them, standing before the face of God. The best thing any church can do as it engages in culture war, as it tries to be a witness for Jesus in justice and in sharing the gospel out there in the world, the best thing they can do is to be a community of mutual love, to know themselves as standing before the face of God. If we try to do that work without that root, our works will fail. The three people at Zarephath, the little church, blessed by the grace of God. I was thinking this week, there's one place in scripture where I can think of where the church gets even smaller than that. And I wonder if you can think of a place where the church gets even smaller than that. If you think of one different than me, you can tell me after the service, but mine is Easter morning. On Easter morning, the church is down to two women coming to the tomb to embalm Jesus. Disciples have all fled and gone away. The, 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 the religious authorities have long since given up on Jesus. Nobody's expecting anything. All you have is those two women, and those two women don't really have any faith, right? They think Jesus is dead. All they have is spices. But on Easter morning, the power of God, the resurrection power of God does not just help them float, it propels them. And through their witness, God restarts the whole creation and changes the world. We have important social tasks in this world. God calls us to these tasks and may we be faithful to them. But the power for the work, the faith for the work, the love for the work, the hope for the work comes when we understand ourselves as a simple loving community buoyed up by the resurrecting grace of God. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can come to this place and feel ourselves float. Thank you, Lord, for this grace that flows from this baptismal font, from your word, from this mysterious bread that always provides more than we can ask and imagine. Thank you for this grace that you provided from generation to generation. Thank you for this gospel that endures whether the church is strong or whether the church is weak. Thank you for your resurrection and for the certainty of the hope it gives us. Lord, May we travel through this world as we swim through our week. May we feel ourselves lifted up. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.